It's Wednesday on Weagle, and that means it's time for some tailgate talk with Christian and Donovan, your go-to for all things college football. So get ready for a recap and a breakdown of all the college football scores, news, and predictions. So drop your tailgates, grab your playbooks, and get ready to talk some football. It's about that time. It's about that time. Wednesday, Weagle 91.1 FM and Tailgate Talk. What a great combination to have for your Wednesday afternoon sports coverage. As the campus fills back up here at Auburn University, we come to you live from the Student Center. Whether you're tuning in live on Weagle 91.1 FM radio, downloading our audio on the Weagle website, or listening to our podcast straight from Spotify, we appreciate you for spending a little bit of time with us this afternoon. My name is Christian Griffin, and you know there's three types of soundtracks that are figuratively playing throughout the studio here this afternoon, and I figured I'd dive into a little bit of each of them for you. So first, you know, you just have to imagine that you're on a late night drive, you got some heartbreak music playing, maybe some some old T-Swift, some You Belong With Me or something like that, or uh, some Someone Like You, some Adele playing. Um, second, you know, I hear I hear lyrics that that go along the lines of back-to-back like I'm on the cover of Lethal Weapon, back-to-back like I'm Jordan 96-97. If you know football, I think you might know where I'm going with that one. And then third, I know it's not Christmas anymore, and trust me, I'm not somebody that wants to listen to Christmas music all the way up until Valentine's Day, but the thought of, of just a hue freezing cold winter just really sounds nice, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, I'm sure if you ask him, he'd, he'd much rather prefer uh, flip-flops, if you'd see what I did there. But um, <laughs> that's pretty bad. Uh, the first group of songs that I want to represent, How I Am in the Studio This Afternoon, all those heartbreak songs, is because, if you can't tell, I am without my co-host, Donovan Weaver, this afternoon. No, I haven't had his mic off this entire time, and no, I did not have an intro that was this long without him saying anything at all. Uh, he ended up getting a class that he didn't think he would get this afternoon, and that takes place right at the time of Tailgate Talk. So we're going to try and find another time for us to get this show on the radio. Uh, I know we've talked about doing an hour or two hours or splitting hours here and there, but we are going to have to move from that Wednesday slot at 3. Uh, we'll provide any information as soon as we can get it, but... Uh, He didn't find out until it was a little too late for us to make any changes. So, here I am, all alone, with a microphone and a computer, and a pretty intimidating soundboard that have a lot of buttons that are flashing at me, and I'm not too sure if I'm doing it correctly. I'm hoping I'm doing it correctly. Uh, So a major shout-out to Donovan, because uh, that's a little bit scarier than it seems. A second... As you know, the lyrics that I uh, said, I spoke, I didn't rap them or anything, but Back to Back by Drake, uh, I'm sure has been the most listened to song by any restaurant or bar in Athens, Georgia, the past few days, as the Bulldogs, Bulldogs win Back to Back National Championships and are the first team to do so since Bama in 2011 and 2012. Uh, luckily, we got one in 2010, but uh, it's hard seeing your rivals doing what they're doing and then third there really has been a freeze warning here at Auburn since November 29th when Hugh Freeze took over that head coach's seat Uh, what started on a thin sheet of ice has turned into well 
uh, a much thicker sheet of ice. I guess that's the best that I could come up with. But it seems like Coach Freeze has made just about every correct move, uh, it seems. I mean, we'll break down that a little bit later on. Obviously, he hasn't stepped foot on the field, and the players that he's gotten haven't worn an Auburn jersey yet, so it's hard to see exactly how those numbers and the, the, the papers stack up against other teams. But if you're looking at it strictly from a numbers standpoint, it seems like he really has made every correct move But we will break that down a little bit later on in the show, a little rundown of what I'm going to cover with us today. We're going to start with the national championship. I feel like that's that's obviously the talk of college football as it wraps up uh, the 2022 season, not the calendar year, but the season. We'll go into a little bit of the game, a little bit of uh, what the coaches had to say, and a little bit of the fan, we'll say, response to to what they watched. on Monday night. I don't know if I want to call it a football game, but uh, whatever was shown between the yard or between the hashes, that was what we watched. And so we'll get to hear some of the fans' reactions there. Uh, we're going to go into the College Football Hall of Fame inductees. There were 18 players and four coaches that were selected. And I don't necessarily want to focus on all of the players or coaches that, that were selected, except for, for one of them in specifically. Um, because the NIL is now a part of college football. But in 2005, when somebody named Reggie Bush was essentially using his talent and name to profit off of him, uh, his Heisman Trophy was revoked, but he was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame this past year, I guess three or four days ago. And so there's a little bit of controversy there talking about not only should he get the Heisman Trophy back, but a little bit of skepticism on if he should be in the College Football Hall of Fame based on his actions off the field. And then, again, we will finish up with Hugh Freeze and everything that he has done here at Auburn. Um, I know that there's a lot of, or there were a lot of naysayers that were going on prior to his arrival or as soon as they heard about the arrival, uh, but those those naysayers have quickly faded, and we're going to go through uh, pretty much the reasons why. Um, got a whole bunch of things, whether it's whether it's coaches or whether it's the the portal or the recruits that he's gotten and the the jumps that we've made in the recruiting process. But I figured we'd go ahead and start with nothing else but the college football playoff national championship. Georgia, I mean, you can throw any synonym in here for slaughters, manhandles, annihilates. Any bloody or gruesome synonym, honestly, it fits the description perfectly of what Georgia did to TCU. I even heard something as far as the dogs went gigging for some frogs. If you uh, if you want to go that far, a uh, simple stat here: I am I am not a betting man whatsoever. Uh, I don't have the money to to trust myself, or do I trust myself in that whole world? But if I did have plenty of money to burn. Uh, and I knew this statistic would come up, I would be going all in. All of my chips would be in the middle of the table. If you have as many touchdowns as your opponent does first downs, uh, you're going to win the football game. I'll I'll say that a little bit bit slower. Here we go. Uh, If you have as many touchdowns as your opponent does first downs, uh, you're going to win the football game. And that is exactly what Georgia did. Pretty impressive. Uh, again, I talk about, I mean, Mattress Mac. I don't know if y'all have, y'all have heard that name. 
but I kind of wish I could be him in a lot of different ways. Uh, he is one of the biggest sports bettors in all of sports betting history, whether it's the MLB, college football, NFL, anything. Uh, he's actually won the biggest sports bet ever, where he had a $75 million payout on the Astros winning the World Series this past year. Uh, that's a solid payday. Uh, he actually placed a bet on TCU to to win and to cover and the over-under, a bunch of those types of things, uh, but all for the all on the TCU side. And he ended up losing $3.1 million, which, I mean, I guess for him, you can't necessarily say is uh, too hard, but that's still a ratio that I would be okay with. I mean, I don't feel like that's too much, too much to ask for. But transitioning into the game, Stetson Bennett, who would have thought would be labeled by Kirby Smart as the greatest dog of all time? A walk-on that was initially at Georgia, couldn't play, went to a JUCO, came back to Georgia, listed as the greatest dog of all time. Not in the quarterback category, not on the offensive category, but in Kirby Smart's eyes, in all time. Some big words for the former walk-on. But if you are the offensive MVP in all four of the college football playoff games that you play in, it's hard to well disagree. Goes 18 of 25, 304 yards and four passing touchdowns. He also added two rushing touchdowns, tying Joe Burrow's playoff touchdown record. Um, to show the dominance of the dogs, uh, Georgia ran the ball 44 times and still had more than 300 passing yards. That's Pretty impressive in itself, and that's not to be shied away from the fact that Georgia got 5.8 yards per carry on those 44 carries. I think the best thing that you look at as outside of the the individual game are like the storylines that, that come up either before or after the game. And I think the best story from this was the, the fake narrative uh, from Kirby Smart, I guess that started under Nick Saban because he's always found a way to do it, and it would make sense because Kirby is a product of Nick Saban, essentially. But Kirby essentially had bulletin board material that the media undervalued this Georgia team. There were a bunch of players in post-game interviews talking about how the media projected them to go 6-6 six and six or 7-5 and five because of the 12 draft picks that they lost. But for me, I just I don't even think that a 7 and 5 prediction was or a 6 and 6 prediction was around Georgia even before Mark Rick was there. I mean, I feel like he could guarantee you an 8 and 4, 9 and 3 type year. I mean, that's what he was famous for and ultimately that was the reason he was fired because he could only go 8 and 4 or 9 and 3. But I mean, I guess that's a heck of a job from Kirby's standpoint of drawing the eyes of his players in a positive direction rather than looking at a the mindset of, hey, we won the national championship, we're on top of the world. He essentially came in there saying, hey, media saying you're not going to do anything. And talking to all the freshmen, you know, you haven't done anything because of how many guys we lost. You know, this program has done a lot. The program won a national championship. But what have you done? Well, I guess now they can say they've won a national championship. And they did it in a way that, the 2021 team could not. Uh, this team went undefeated, 15-0, which is very, very impressive. Speaking of doing a great job all year long, I feel like all the credit in the world for that Georgia team has to go to Todd Munkin. 
the job that he did as the offensive coordinator for that team and that offense that real I mean I think the offense was what had some struggles going into the season talking about if Stetson was going to be able to do what he did I think the Georgia defense is always known as being dominant the Georgia quarterback position has never been known as someone who's going to carry an offense it's always been relying on that run game and then the quarterback doing enough to win you football games but the job that he's done he did do and has done with Stetson getting him comfortable with doing what he does best. Not trying to be a superhero, which, I mean, <laughs> I guess if you don't try to be a superhero, it's easier to be a superhero. But just the, the, the ability that he has to to affect a game and to, to call the exact right plays in, it seems like, every single situation that you need to have that right play. He's made the offense elite, and that's something – not from, again, not from a, a running perspective, but that is from both factors of the offensive side of the ball. You look back at a couple of the, the grosser games, I guess you could say, that Georgia had, say, Kentucky or Missouri. Uh, I mean, if you're looking from a strictly score standpoint, even that Kent State game was a little bit uncomfortable, I guess you could say, if you were a Georgia fan. Uh, I'm sure there was some sweat that was wiped off the brow from Munkin or you know, a couple deep breaths up in that press box post game knowing all right whew, we got away with this one I would love to imagine what was going through his mind about five minutes into the second quarter of that national championship game I mean you got to be covering your covering your smile I mean ear to ear with the play sheet that you could essentially go hey Siri pick a number between one and 100 my Siri actually just went off um, and she just said 62 so um, if Todd Munkin called number 62, that play would work. That's a pretty good sign and a pretty good feeling as an offensive coordinator, knowing that you can essentially do whatever you, you want to do to a defense. There was a, there was a punt to start the third quarter. And, you know, if you, if you sandwich that punt in between the rest of the drives – uh, they, that punt was sandwiched in between four or more straight touchdown drives with a field goal thrown in the mix. So essentially, I've said essentially a bunch today, but eight touchdowns with a field goal thrown in with a punt, you know, somewhat in the middle. That's a pretty solid offensive day. We're going to cover a little bit more once we get back, but we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Tailgate Talk on Weagle 91.1 FM. And welcome back to Tailgate Talk on Weagle 91.1 FM. If you are just joining us, I am without my co-host Donovan Weaver this afternoon, and I'm in complete control of the soundboard. So hopefully, hopefully it doesn't sound too bad, but my name is Christian Griffin, and we are going to continue with the college football playoff national championship. I just talked about how there was a punt sandwiched in between at least four touchdowns on either side of it. And if we're going to be completely honest, I, I honestly think that, that that punt was just Stetson being nice to the punt unit uh, and the punter specifically for allowing them to participate in the, the national championship. Um, I mean, if you have such offensive success, you know, there's enough to be shared. And, you know, that's why they, that's why they settled for one field goal. And that's why they punted once. So that way, you know, everybody could get some playing time. Everybody could say in 20 years, like, hey, I played, I, I, I ran 
one punt, or I, I snapped one punt in the college football playoff national championship. Uh, I, that's comically. I don't think that Stetson meant to do that. But if he did, hey, it's a nice guy and a nice gesture. Speaking with or sticking with the <laughs> the comedic side of things, uh, I think you can give a little credit to to Sonny Dykes for his halftime statement. You know, they interviewed him and asked him like, "What what does he need to do, or what does this team need to do?" And I actually t- I tweeted this. He said, "You know, we just got to get settled in." And you know, I, I find that that pretty funny considering. You are down more points than how many minutes are left in the game. TC was down 38 to seven at halftime with 30 minutes to play, but they just needed to get to get settled in. And I mean, I guess it worked for them because that Georgia that first drive that Georgia had in the third quarter, they punted. So um, I guess it worked. I wish that, um, or I guess he wishes that he would have given that that sort of speech before every drive in the second half, and then it might have only been you know a 48 to seven game. Or something like that. Um, but nonetheless, you do have to give Sonny Dykes credit without any jokes. Uh, he did do a wonderful job in his first year at TCU. He said before the Michigan semifinal game that when he got to TCU and he looked around, there there were seven or eight guys that had been to a bowl game ever. Not even not a, not a playoff game or New Year's Six, a bowl game ever. And the fact that, you know, 16, 17 weeks later, or even before summer camp and spring ball and stuff like that, you know, you're, you're looking into a room and that many weeks later you're playing in a national championship. I feel like that's that's so hard to do. Obviously, we talked about Tulane and their jump that they made this past year from going two and ten to twelve and two and beating USC in the Cotton Bowl. Uh, I feel like that's such a such a big accomplishment. You know, we think of it as with Auburn here going three and nine in 2012. Gus Malzahn comes in. Uh, we win the SEC. I go to a national championship. I feel like that's that's that kind of jump that that a program can make in a year, even if you're looking at it from a Tennessee standpoint. Uh, a very average team over the past couple of years. You know, you get Hypel, you get um, you get Hooker, and you know that offense just is electrified. And you know they're a win from South Carolina or Georgia away from playing in the playoff. So being able to do that in your first year is deserves all the applause in the world. We're hoping that Hugh Freeze can do something like that here at Auburn. And the funny thing is, is that TCU is, or it's not funny, but TCU is reloading as well. It's not really a rebuild anymore. They are very much reloading. They actually, uh, I don't know if y'all have seen this, but they actually did agree to a name change uh, going into this upcoming season. And it's the Texas Christian Crimson Tide. Um, there are three Pama transfers that have already signed their papers and are heading to Fort Worth next year. Uh, a receiver, a running back, and an offensive lineman. And so if there's three, I mean, why not make it more? So the Texas Christian Crimson Tide. I feel like that's a, a very solid name. And then we'll get into this a little bit more when Donovan is here. I know that this is something that we're both – pretty in pretty adamant about and have a lot to say but want to voice our opinions so I'd love to have a conversation with him about this but I'll get into it just a little bit we're we are both very much against the 12 team playoff and the transfer portal rules you know those types of things but you know maybe in a room full of darkness there that 
that type of transfer it can be the light that nobody just no, nobody can see yet because the NIL or not the NIL the transfer portal is still so new that you can't see the end of the tunnel or something like that. Um, and so maybe that's what can make that 12 team playoff round out a little bit more because there's I mean obviously it's still a bunch of questions about you know who is the most deserving in those four spots. I mean, it's pretty fair to say that Bama and Tennessee are sitting there either with their arms crossed or their arms, you know, spread open saying, you know, I told you, I told you we deserve this spot. Obviously it's easier to say now hindsight is 2020, but maybe it is, maybe that is hard to say. Maybe it's hard to say that they didn't deserve a spot. Even if you're not looking at the result that TCU brought to the field on Monday night, the talent that Tennessee, even with Joe Milton the third at quarterback, even without Hendon Hooker, we saw what they did to Clemson's defense, and Joe Milton looked like he had been there all year. And then, you know, we saw what Bryce Young and Alabama did to Kansas State that beat TCU in the Big 12 championship. I and mean, we saw teams like that just get absolutely dominated or dominate the lesser opponent, I guess you could say. Maybe that 12-team playoff will be good from the standpoint of transfer portal. Maybe it will round things out a little bit more. Maybe it will bring some sort of an even playing field. But it's it's hard to say as of right now. Uh, speaking of Bama in the playoffs, though, I feel like this is, this is something that Twitter blew up on, I feel like, all day. Uh, just talking about, I would love to see how hard Saban was balling his fists up when he was talking pregame and was having to talk good about Georgia and Stetson Bennett and he was having to talk good about TCU and the the comeback wins that they've had and the opponents that they've beat. You know that he didn't believe any of that. He much would have rather sat up there and said, you know, I mean, TCU beat Kansas. You know, I mean, that's that's pretty solid. And then go into who they beat. I mean, granted, a win against Texas A&M, Auburn, Ole Miss, Texas, if you want to go there. Those don't look as impressive, but it looks a little bit better than a Kansas team that took Arkansas to the wire, granted, in the uh, in their bowl game, but ended up going 6-7, and seven, I think, after a 5-0 and start, I want to say. So it's hard saying that stuff like that, but I would, I would love to see the – his his forehead vein popping out just at the anger that he had having to give compliments about other teams. And if we want to talk about, you know, Saban and being angry and stuff, I would also love to be a fly on the wall when he got home that night after hearing Pollock's uh, statements about Georgia. He said, quote, Georgia, obviously, we've seen from the past couple of seasons now, really, they've taken over or they've taken the hold of college football. And, uh, yeah, I think Nick's going to remember that one. Um, if Bama somehow makes it to the playoff next year, you know that that's going to be, you know, a statement that, you know, it's going to be one of those tweets that don't age well type deal or something like that. But, you know, you, you just know that he's going to remember it, especially after the the stare and the eye roll that, that Saban gave. I would just – I would love – I would kill to, to be able to get his, his – unprofessional and raw reaction to to a statement like that when your team was basically two plays, four points 
three seconds from going undefeated and being in the college football playoff and probably serving as the the, first, the toughest, if not the second toughest, if you're comparing Ohio State to to competing for that championship spot against Georgia. And then one last thing um, before we go to break and one more thing about the college football playoff before I move on. There's a video going around social media. It's probably easiest to find on Twitter. Uh, it's a man in front of his TV, and he's wearing a Mississippi State hat. If you haven't already, I encourage you to pull up that video, look it up. It wouldn't be too hard to find. It's literally all over Twitter. Uh, but just give yourself a minute or two to soak in what he's saying. Don't necessarily listen to the tone, but listen to the words and how the tone is being spoken. I guess that's what's important. I'll give you a little insight on a quote that he said. But he says, quote, This is the game that every college football fan, no matter what team they pull for, looks forward to. And this is the garbage that you gave us, referring to the college football playoff committee. You know, just give it a listen. That's all That's all that I'm asking. I can see it from both sides, but it's, it is really hard to disagree with the passion that he speaks from, especially coming from someone like myself, who would argue that I love college football more than anybody else in the world. Um, you know, I, I obviously spoke very high on TCU and Max Duggan the entire year. And it's it's things like a game in the national championship where you remove the question marks of who's deserving. And that's not me saying you know, Bama should have been in this year with two losses or Tennessee should have been in this year with two losses. And I would love to get Donovan's opinion on this too because I know Donovan's the one that's going, you know, Alabama shouldn't be in because they didn't, you know, who did they beat? You know, you got to beat the teams that you play. That's all that you can do uh, to make it to the college football playoff. And that's the side that I see from the from the committee standpoint, but I also, I also see it from the college football enjoyment standpoint, wanting to see the best two teams go at it. And I know that that's a little bit of a shot at TCU. I don't necessarily mean for it to, but I mean, you get blown out in the largest margin of victory in a bowl game ever and it's in the national championship game. That's that's a hard thing to to overcome and it's it's a hard thing for the committee to to overlook and just go, you know, if they would have lost by a touchdown, like, okay, yeah, TCU was deserving. They just lost by a touchdown. This is almost – this game is almost worse than a Cincinnati game from last year where they lost – it was either 24-6 to or 30-6, to something like that, to Alabama. It was respectable because Cincinnati didn't look awful. But TCU, uh, yeah, they looked they looked pretty bad. And so that's a, it's a hard thing for the committee to have to get over. It's a hard thing for TCU to have to get over. And it's a hard thing for the fans to have to get over, knowing that probably you didn't have the best two teams in the college football playoff national championship. We're going to take a short break before I get into the college football Hall of Fame inductees. We talk a little bit about Reggie Bush, and then we'll finish it up talking about Hugh Freeze. You're listening to Tailgate Talk on Weagle 91.1 FM. Welcome back to Tailgate Talk on Weagle 91.1 FM. We just finished up talking about the college football playoff national championship. And now I'm going to move down to the recent college football Hall of Fame inductees. 
Sorry about that. The 2023 College Football Hall of Fame inductees were announced this past weekend as Reggie Bush, Tim Tebow, and Mark Richt were the headline names for the 2023 class. In total, there were 18 players and four coaches that were selected. Other players selected were Eric Berry, Dwight Freeney, LaMichael James, Luke Keekley, and a few others that I have lesser knowledge of, unfortunately. But the reason that I wanted to talk about this topic and bring it up was not necessarily to talk about who got in. Uh, I guess it is, but it's more of a reason of, of why and the possible controversy that could come with a player being inducted into that Hall of Fame committee, or not committee, but the Hall of Fame brotherhood. So as we know, Reggie Bush had his 2000, or 2005 Heisman Trophy Award vacated in 2010 after USC was hit with NCAA sanctions, finding that Bush had basically profited off his name and his talent. Now, <laughs> you ask somebody that became a college football fan two years ago, and you know, he sees nothing wrong with it because that's the world of college football today. But back then, that type of thing was illegal. And because of that, Bush received many criticisms and punishments. USC um, had like a 10-year ban on him. It was just recently lifted in 2020, and they welcomed him back into the football program. But the Heisman Trophy was obviously the top of the list of punishments that, that Bush received. So the College Football Hall of Fame committee decides these names worthy to be in the Hall of Fame based on a number of categories, but the third one I find really important. Uh, it mentions that college football achievements are a prime consideration, but the record as a citizen and carrying the, the proper ideals of college football off the field and forward into life are also looked into. And so obviously in 2005, off the field Reggie Bush wasn't somebody that I think that the NCAA would look at 18 years later and say that, you know, he deserves to be in the College Football Hall of Fame. Going back against that, in the press conference when Bush's name was announced, they they mentioned his fifth place voting in 2004 as well as numerous awards for the 20 or the 2005 season but they did not list his 2005 Heisman Trophy. And so that draws the, the questions of, okay, why do one thing but not the other? Either give him his Heisman Trophy and put him in the Hall of Fame, or do neither. And you can kind of see both sides of the story. I mean, the one side is the fact that NIL wasn't around then, and he broke the rules. So if that's the case, did he do what that third rule said and did the right things off the field that would label him hall of fame status. Or you could say it as, okay, well now the fact that NIL is allowed and you just put him into the hall of fame, he should get that Heisman trophy back because that boosts his resume in, in the hall of fame. And so, I mean, it really is something that you can look at from, from both sides, the NCAA has stated a couple years ago, I think when the NIL was first around and the Bush scandal came up, that they would not be re-evaluating old infractions. But I'm interested. I'm interested to see if if this voting and this inductionship inductionship, um, I'm looking forward to see if 
if that gets revoked or if they do eat their words and end up having a vote or something like that or changing it to where Bush can get his Heisman his Heisman trophy. I mean, again, it's just it's a it's something that you can see you can see from both sides. You know, either way, it's it's an uncomfortable topic. Yet I feel like it's it's a very unavoidable one. And I feel like, you know, the the chaotic or the chaos that that comes with with not not only a situation like this, but just college football in general. I just feel like that's why we love it. Uh, I was talking with some friends and family members. Over the break, talking about that, I wish I didn't love college football how much as, as much as I do. I wish that that I could go out and enjoy my fall, my stress-free weekends in the fall. Uh, I, I wish that I could could make my girlfriend happy and enjoyably go to a fall festival and sip a pumpkin spice latte happily. But I just can't. I I can't. I, I have to be watching college football. The day kind of depends on it. And I know that I'm not alone. I know that I think that's why we love college football because of the the chaotic nature that it brings or the animosity towards other teams and the competitive nature that it draws out of you, whether it's from your childhood or, or whatever it may be, bringing back memories of you playing and having that competitive fire. I mean, I used to think that whenever Auburn had a bye week, I would be I'd be able to just, you know, sit back and enjoy enjoy my weekend knowing that you know there wasn't a possibility that Auburn could lose. But instead, I'm sitting there on a Saturday when Auburn's not playing going, "Well, dang, I wish they were playing so that way I could watch them." I feel like it's a you can't win for losing with college football, but I feel like that's a that's why we love it. I mean, we're simply whichever side of the scale that we fall on, whether we you know, just care a little bit or you know, your Saturday and the rest of your week depends on what falls in that win loss column you're basing or we are basing our happiness on a group of 18 to 22 year old kids usually Stetson figuratively pointing at you uh but I mean it's just isn't that wild I just I feel like that's something that you gotta love just college football if you're if you're not a college football fan or you're somebody from from a different country I mean you I'm sure you look at American football as you know, something that is absolutely crazy, bringing out the absolute worst moods or the best moods in people, depending on a win or a loss. Again, that comes from an 18 to 22 year old kid. It's kind of crazy, but it's college football and that's why we love it. We're gonna go ahead and finish off today's podcast talking about Hugh Freeze and the job that he has done since getting hired on November 29th of 2022. On that day, and even before then, when his name became serious considerations after the whole Lane Kiffin deal broke away, the fan base was split into two. You know, one side held torches and pitchforks, the other side sung praises and cheered. I feel like there was a very a very fine line, and if you did straddle the fence, you know, you did your research and then you picked a side. I don't feel like there was anybody that was, you know, we'll see. We'll see. And I feel like, you know, that's the Achilles heel for Auburn fans. It's a good thing and a bad thing that you have an opinion about everything and you have to you have to speak that opinion. It can be good and it can be bad. And although Hugh hasn't stepped on the field as Auburn's head coach and the performance hasn't been judged by a final score, 
it's very hard to not be extremely positive with what Auburn fans have seen and what Hugh Freeze, Cadillac, Trevon Reed, and staff has done and has brought in to to the program. I mean, you go back from the Mississippi State game and you saw a team that got dominated in the first half in Cadillac's first game. They came out in the second half a completely different team, and that was something that we were not used to seeing at all. We were used to the first half being okay and the second half just being abysmal. But you see a second-half team that at the time was 3-5 and five fight and, and show – that they care that you hadn't you hadn't really seen that type of energy before in an Auburn team in the past couple of years, but you see that in a team that's three and five. You go back home the next week and look at the Texas A and M game. You look at a sold out Texas A and M game. The student section was full. Auburn wins. I mean, look at the atmosphere that Cadillac brought with him. And now all of a sudden, Hugh Freeze comes and just builds on that ability to recruit and using Cadillac and Trevon Reed and the staff that he's gotten to deliver the Auburn fans, I mean, it's past Christmas, but the best Christmas gift that we could ask for, I think he exceeded all of those expectations of getting players from recruiting or from signing day or from the transfer portal. You know, I think Auburn had expectations, but when you only have a month before signing day to recruit and you you bring a bring a program from the mid-60s to the mid-teens in, in that time. I mean, that's that's such a spectacular accomplishment. And so I feel like, you know, the naysayers of Hugh Freeze have, have, have dwindled a little bit. I feel like that's fair. That's fair to say because, you know, you're looking at what he's doing. And you're seeing how he comes in and he takes care of what needs to get taken care of. That's something, again, that we haven't seen over the past few years. I mean, shoot, we haven't seen recruiting in the past three or four years. It seems like every single year there's been that squeaky wheel or that leak in the boat that just never gets fixed. And it's the same problem every single year. I think over the past couple of years, that's definitely been the offensive line. And then, you know, it's been the, the, the lack of go-to receiver talent. I feel like those are the two the two big things that that you look at and think frustratedly about that Auburn team or the the past Auburn teams. Uh, Hugh Freeze has come to Auburn. He sat down on his desk and said, "Let's get to work." And uh, he didn't even put a band aid on you know the problem. He kind of did his best his best Phil Swift you know flex seal or flex tape the um, you know hitting us with a you can saw this boat in half and you know he fixes it or whatever and then there's no leaks or anything like that. Uh, it's pretty bad. Donovan would have laughed, though. Uh, but he essentially sealed up the offensive line, at least with names and paper talent. So after keeping Cadillac, Zach Etheridge, Trevon Reed, you know, Coach Freeze, he went out and got the best. And we're actually going to take a quick little break before we get into the names that he has hired and the jobs that they have done since coming to Auburn and even before Auburn. But we are definitely going to dive into those Stick around. You're listening to Tailgate Talk on Weagle 91.1 FM. And welcome back to Tailgate Talk on Weagle 91.1 FM. We are finishing up the episode here. we got a few more minutes. 
But we're talking about the job that Hugh Freeze has done since he's stepped foot on Auburn's campus. You know, we talked about the the, the guys he's kept, and we're going to talk about the the guys he's gotten now. So, you know, it comes to Auburn, and the first the first move he makes. You know, we just talked about the biggest issue of the team being the offensive line, and I feel like that's that was the clear issue over the past few years was the lack of run game because the offensive line couldn't support the run. So what did Hugh Freeze do? He gets on campus and hires Jake Thornton, who was Ole Miss's offensive line coach the past two years, uh, where Ole Miss not only led the SEC in rushing yards per game, but were tenth or top ten nationally in total offense both of those years. Um, yeah, got him. So then in floods the linemen. You know, I read a stat where. In 2017 through 2022, this past year, Auburn landed 16 offensive linemen from high school, JUCO, and transfers combined. So 16 over a span of, what, five and a half years, six years. Uh, The 2023 class alone that, once again, Hugh Freeze had a month to to recruit, uh, has eight. So one... One recruiting class has half of what the past five or six years did, uh, and that is absolutely humongous. I'm sure you know Thornton has been along Freeze's side with that whole process. And I mean, if you're if you're playing for a coach that knows what he's doing, I mean, the offense you know shows it by putting up points and <laughs> and leading the SEC in rushing. I mean, that's a you think about all of the great running backs. You think about how many times you know Georgia runs the ball, and you think about the dominance that Alabama's had, but no, it's it's Ole Miss that leads the league in rushing. Pretty impressive. Next comes Philip Montgomery, the former head coach at Tulsa, who was the offensive coordinator, uh, has offensive coordinating experience uh, when he led the Heisman Trophy winner Robert Griffin III and the Baylor Bears. Got him. Next, Ron Roberts. He was the defensive coordinator, ironically, for Baylor over the past three years. And his tenure is highlighted by his 2021 season, where the Bears won their third Big 12 title and its first New Year's Six win in the modern bowl era. That is pretty impressive. Uh, that twenty one that 2021 team that led... Um, that led themselves to the Big 12 Championship and the New Year's Six Bowl. They led the conference in turnovers gained. I know that that's another big thing for Auburn is the turnover margin, not because of the turnovers on offense, but you know we felt like we couldn't, couldn't get them back when we were on defense. Well, that team led the conference in turnovers gained with 27. They, were also, they also finished second in the Big 12 in scoring defense, uh, only allowing 18.3 points per game in run defense and only 118 yards per game and sacks with 3.14 a game. Got him. Finally, Auburn goes back to their roots. Auburn needed a receiving coach and and a good one because once again that that receiving core is not something that is seemed as a major threat. You know, I I feel like the last the last top receiver that that Auburn has had. I mean, I think you could say 2017 with Darius Slayton. I mean, you're seeing what he's doing with the Giants now. But, you know, you, you got to find guys that you feel comfortable delivering the ball to, that you know you can go up, 
make a catch, make a grab, a tough grab, a one-on-one 50-50 ball. You don't really see Auburn take 50-50 shots. You just really don't. And I feel like that's something that, you know, you want to be able to have guys that you can trust to go out there and make that play, either come down with the catch, get a pass interference, or worst-case scenario, it's an incomplete pass. Well, Marcus Davis steps in. Marcus Davis was a receiver. He was a freshman in the 2013 National Championship, ended up being a captain um, when he was a senior at Auburn. Uh, But this past season, he was the wide receiver coach for Georgia Southern. And it took me a minute when when I heard Georgia Southern because I'm used to Georgia Southern running like a, a triple option type offense because that's what that's what they used to a couple years ago. But again, a couple years ago, uh, that changed and they turned much more into a, a pro in a, a down the field type of offense. And Georgia Southern was ranked fourth nationally in passing offense with 329 passing yards per game. And I mean, yeah, you can say that that's on the quarterback and offensive line, but you got to have guys that can go up and make those plays that are coming down with 329 receiving yards per game. Southern had nine games this past year of a 100-yard receiver or more. And so I feel like that in itself speaks to to what he can do. And then the fact that we've seen what Cadillac and Trevon Reed and Zach Etheridge can do because they're Auburn guys. It's like they're, they're, they're coaching, they're doing their job, but they're doing it for so much more than just themselves. They're doing it for the Auburn program. I mean, you hear them all say, you love Auburn, they're going to love you back. And you bring in another guy like that, like Marcus Davis, who loved Auburn, played all four years at Auburn, and is coming back to not only do a job, but to provide for a program that gave him life, that gave him the ability to play. And I feel like that gives you so much more than, than, than just doing your job. I mean, you look at Kirby being a Georgia alumni. He goes back to his alma mater. I feel like being the coach there provides that much more fire because you're playing or you're coaching for the the team that you played for. And I feel like that's that's such a cool thing. Not many people get that. So when you do have that opportunity, you want to make the most of it even more than you already want to. And I feel like that's just that's such a cool thing. I feel like it's such a it's an Auburn thing and I really I really appreciate that. And I appreciate Marcus Davis and his ability to come back and we've seen what him and Freeze and everybody have done because of the receivers we've gotten in the portal. I know we just got a, a 6'6 Cincinnati receiver transfer. Talk about a threat. I mean, that's that's a heck of a body going up to get a ball right there. Almost kind of kind of underutilized, but um, oh my gosh, I can't even think of his name. Anyways, we're just going to keep moving. Um, but yeah, the recruits that come in because of these coaches that they've got, Sal Canella, that's who I was thinking. That type of frame <laughs> in the red zone provides such such a threat. I mean, you look at Brock Bowers, and not only with his speed or whatever, but just his height over cornerbacks to go up and get the balls that Stetson's providing. You know, just jump balls that he's winning. If you can get that, I mean, six five, six six receivers on. Most cornerbacks that are 5'11", 6'1", 6'2", maybe. That's a big a big red zone threat in itself. Auburn has always topped the charts from a recruiting standpoint with the school and the atmosphere and the student body, but they always lacked the one thing that 
was needed most, and that's a coaching staff. Well, that's finally here. And you're seeing a reflection of that because of the signing day and the portal rankings. I mean, once again, we had a team that was ranked mid-60s in their recruiting class, uh, and they, you walk away in the mid-teens. I mean, that is that is crazy impressive in itself to make that jump, but when you only have a month, I feel like that brings a lot of positive momentum of what he can do in a full year or two years, especially if the wins start falling. Winning makes recruiting that much easier. And I also saw that as of yesterday, depending on where you look, Auburn has the second or third ranking in the uh, portal pickups, which is a crazy thing within itself. Auburn has picked up 10 key players in the transfer portal. We've lost 10. We've picked up 10. But, I mean, if you're looking at 247, like the value of the transfers has gone up, which is crazy. And so, I mean, regardless, I think that the naysayers that freeze or the naysayers about freeze have slowly dwindled and hopefully – the results on the scoreboard will continue to keep them away. But that will do it for today's episode of Tailgate Talk on Weagle 91.1 FM. I'm hoping to be able to call it episode 1.5 because I know that Donovan and I would both like to throw something out there by this weekend, uh, but we wanted to get this out to play it safe just to make sure that we had something. Uh, but I know that he, he wants to be on. I mean, I FaceTimed him right before this, and we were talking about how much he wants to be on here and everything. So I know that he's wanting to get something and we can throw it out. Make sure to check us out on Spotify if you haven't already. It's there where you can find any of the previous episodes, this episode, or any of our future podcasts such as the one that might come this weekend uh, and any of the ones that might come later in the year. For my co-host, Donovan Weaver, I'm Christian Griffin, and we will see you all next week. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Tailgate Talk with Christian and Donovan. Tune in next week, same time, same place, Wednesdays at 3, for your weekly dose of college football.